This morning, if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 7 as we continue our story looking at the judgeship of Gideon, which we started last week in Judges 6, which is the well-known story of the fleece. Gideon asked God to make the fleece wet and the ground around it dry. God answers his requests. Gideon wants another confirmation, so he asks God to keep the fleece dry and make the ground wet around it. And God answers all of those prayers. So last week we learned that God had tremendous patience with Gideon in spite of the fact that he had very little faith. So now we actually come in Judges 7 to the battle with the Midianites. And as we work our way through this chapter today, uh, we're going to learn four primary observations from the text that you might want to jot down. Number one, God knows the human heart. Number two, God refines Gideon's army. Number three, God strengthens Gideon's faith. And then number four, God provides unusual victory. So they all start with God. God knows the human heart. God refines Gideon's army. God strengthens Gideon's faith. And God provides unusual victory. So we're going to work our way through this chapter this morning. But number one, God knows the human heart. Now we're told in verse 1 of chapter 7 that Gideon and the people encamped beside the spring of Harad. Now what's really interesting about the Hebrew is most of these Hebrew words have literary significance. And the word for Harad, it actually means the spring of trembling. So what's the text trying to communicate to us? That Gideon and the people, as they approach this spring of Harad, they are scared out of their minds. They're horrified about what they're going to have to do. Now God has already told them that he's going to provide victory, but nevertheless, they are scared. So look at verses 2 through 4. Now you would think, before I read that, that the people are scared, they're trembling, they're not sure what's about to happen, and so this would be the perfect time for God to step in and give some miraculous speech of encouragement to build up the troops before they go out. And then let's read verses 2 to 4. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead, not the church, the actual mountain in Judges. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. God is a phenomenal motivational speaker, isn't he? He tells Gideon, when all the people are fearful and trembling, by the way, Gideon, you've got way too many soldiers. We need to trim that back some. This is not the formula that Gideon nor the Israelites were looking for God to bring them victory. They wanted more troops, not less. And God comes in in the way that only he can, and he reminds them, listen, 
if I let you go with those 32,000 troops, I know exactly what's going to happen. You're going to take credit for this victory. And because I'm a jealous God, because I'm a God who wants glory only for myself, we're going to trim that number back to ensure that you don't become boastful and arrogant. See, God knows our hearts. God knows our minds better than we do. The scriptures actually tell us that the heart is deceitful above all else, which is why I always tell y'all to not use phrases like follow your heart or do whatever your heart tells you. That's horrible advice. Your heart is deceitful above all else. Don't follow your heart. So if Gideon and the Israelites would have followed their hearts in this battle, they more than likely would have been wiped out by the Midianites because God didn't want them to have 32,000 soldiers. He wanted to trim that number back. And he knows that if they were victorious with that whole group, it would only cause them to boast in their own great power and in their own great army. This is a really important lesson for us, brothers and sisters. Christians in the room specifically, I'm talking to those of us that are in Christ. Let's just take this church as an example. This church ultimately will not be successful because of any one person. Not because of me as the pastor. Not any church member in this room. I hate to burst your bubble. Not any program. Not the building. Not any musician as great as Reed and Mary Catherine just were. Jesus' church stands on him alone the church will be successful ultimately because god's word tells us the gates of hell will not prevail against it the worst thing that could happen is for you to think that the reason our church is doing well is because of human initiative it is because of the spirit of god moving in our midst That's why it's so grieving to me to see people in this community and all around, really, the American church that hop around from church to church to find the latest, greatest fad or the latest, greatest young preacher or the latest, greatest energy and vibe in the room. If a mass exodus of people were to leave this church because suddenly I dropped dead, then I would would have failed you as your pastor. That would be an indictment on my ministry as the pastor of this church because it's not about me. It's not about any of us. It is about the word of God reigning supreme. It's not about the music. It's not about the youth ministry, the children's ministry, the building. Now we want to have good in all of those things, but ultimately the word of God is what changes hearts. The church is about Jesus Christ, his gospel, the word of God, and the nations getting reached. So if you're proud to be a part of our church, I want you to be proud of our church because we're a church that refuses to back down from boldly preaching the good news. I want you to be proud because we refuse to be a church that caters to personal preference and because we challenge our people to step out of their comfort zone and realize that ultimately the church is not about you. That's the type of church that we want to be. 
God knew in this passage that if he left it up to Gideon and the Israelites with those 32,000 soldiers, they would have ultimately, more than likely, built idols for themselves to be worshipped for this great victory over the Midianites. And as human beings, all of us in this room are prone to elevate ourselves, to think highly of ourselves, to take credit for our own successes. We're guilty of thinking that we deserve the accolades that we're getting when in fact we have received them because of God's grace on our lives. God knows the pride that all of us as human beings struggle with. And we need him through the power of his spirit to kill that pride within our hearts so that he can use us for his glory in the world. God knew the hearts of Gideon and the Israelites in this passage. And he knows our hearts as well. So what does he do? Number two, God refines Gideon's army. Look at verses five to eight. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lap, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lap, I will save you. And give the Midianites into your hands. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So God is going to separate the remaining 10,000 people into two separate groups, those who kneel down to drink water and those who lap like a dog. Now, there's some confusion in the text here about what's happening. We've arrived at a little bit of difficulty. The confusion actually comes in verse 6 because it seems like in verse 6, both groups of people are actually lapping the water. Those that kneel down and lap it and those who lap it from their hands. And you can go down the rabbit hole on what's happening here in the text, but the primary reason the Lord puts this in here is for you to understand that the whole goal was for God to separate these two groups of people, to take the Israelites from 10,000 to 300. Those that kneel down to drink the water have their head down directly in the water in a vulnerable position, not ready in case attack were to happen. But those that scoop it up and lap it out of their hands can keep their head up so that they're ready against any sort of attack. So 9,700 soldiers return home, and Gideon is left with 300. If you're keeping check, that's 32,000, down to 10,000, down to 300. Nothing about this refining process makes sense to us. This does not make sense on paper. 300 men is not enough men to defeat the Midianite army. It doesn't make sense that God would want Israel to do this, but 
as you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of things God does that don't make sense. Why did he ask the Israelites to march around Jericho six times? And then on the seventh day, march around seven times. And then blow their trumpets and then take the city. It doesn't make sense that God would have established a covenant with a man named Abraham and his descendants. When we see Abraham not treating his wife with kindness throughout the book of Genesis. It doesn't make sense that God would take a man like Jonah, tell him to go to the Ninevites. He goes the exact opposite way. Eventually, he goes to Nineveh, and the book of Jonah ends with God complaining, or with Jonah complaining, that God would actually spare them judgment. That book's perplexing. The ending of that book is so perplexing. Why would God do that? If you spend all of your time, especially in the Old Testament, trying to figure out why God acts the way that he acts, you're going to be very frustrated. You're going to be very confused because God's refining process of using weak people, sinful people for his purposes doesn't always make sense to us as human beings. That's when we have to remind ourselves that he is God and we are not. In the same way that God refines the Israelite army here, God oftentimes refines his church. In fact, you could argue that a refining process, especially within the American church, is happening as we speak. In 2021, I've shared this with you before, for the first time that Gallup has been tracking church membership in America for over eight decades, 2021 was the first time that church membership in America dipped under 50%. We're seeing those that have often claimed church membership for all of the wrong reasons, such as networking purposes, because it made their parents or their grandparents happy, because the church aligned with their political views, all of those are the wrong reasons for joining churches. And now we're starting to see church membership dip for the first time in over 80 years under that 50% thresh mark. So who knows how long God will continue to refine the American church. But in this passage, God knew 32,000, that's not what I want. I want 300 people that will be obedient to me and that are all in for the sake of defeating the Midianites. This is why we say all the time, we would rather be a church that has 155 people even that are hungry, zealous for the gospel, zealous for the nations, zealous for discipleship. Give me that all day long over a room of a thousand that don't care. God wants people that are solely committed to him and his ways in the world. So God refines Gideon's army in this passage. And then number three, God actually strengthens Gideon's faith. I imagine at this point, Gideon had major doubts about God. We learned this last week. He was never satisfied. No matter what God told him, he always wanted more validation, more confirmation. So we get to Judges 7, and Gideon's thinking, I finally have faith that God is going to take care of me, and he dwindles that army down from 32,000 to 300. Look at verses 9 through 15. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, 
Go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel. And he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Now verse 10 says, Gideon, if you're afraid to go down, I'll send someone with you. God already knew that Gideon was afraid. He knew it. So he sends Pura, his servant, with him to go and spy on these soldiers. And in the midst of spying, they basically spill the beans. They know they're going to get defeated by Gideon and his army. But Gideon needed that confirmation. Look at verse 14. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given him into his hand, Midian and all the camp. Why would God allow Gideon to hear this dream? When God had already, time and time, time, and time again, given him confirmation that he was going to take care of him. Why would God do that? Because God knows how incredibly stupid we are. And that we need sometimes as many signs as possible from him before we will step out in faith. Think about all the times throughout these last two chapters that God has provided for Gideon, given him validation and confirmation. He sent the angel in Judges 6 to strike the rock. He kept the fleece dry. He made the fleece wet. And now he sends Gideon to overhear a conversation between these two soldiers. And finally, finally we see Gideon believing in faith that God would do what he said he would do all along. And what's Gideon's response? Look again at verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. That's it. That's the moment of faith for Gideon. It took two chapters before Gideon could finally worship God and believe him. And as soon as he worshiped, he goes back to his 300 soldiers and he says, Arise, the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. God is showing us in this passage an important truth. Faith ultimately is something that God gives to us. 
Now, this is very important, and there's debates about this, but the cry of the Reformation was that regeneration precedes faith. Stay with me for a moment. Let's go to Ephesians 2, the book that we just finished studying. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, Paul tells us in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So you cannot just make the human initiative to have faith if you're dead. If you're dead, somebody has to resurrect you back to life. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. That is why regeneration precedes faith. It's not Gideon exercising true faith as much as it is God giving him faith through the circumstances of his life. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but Gideon has horrible faith. Are you not thankful that God does not judge the quality of our faith, but that we merely have it? He judges the quality of his son's sacrifice on Calvary. And he has deemed that sacrifice sufficient. Now, of course, we want to aspire to have great faith. We all want great faith in the Lord, but it only takes the regeneration that comes before faith for us to be converted to faith in Christ. Salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but Gideon, again, he's got horrible faith. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, which we don't have time to do this morning, there's a whole chapter devoted to these great heroes of the faith. People like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. Guess who makes the list of faith in Hebrews 11? Gideon. Hebrews 11, verse 32. Seriously? Gideon? After everything we've read the last two weeks, he's put in the hall of faith. He's a man of faith because he finally realizes in verse 15 that victory would only come if he submits completely to God's plan for this battle. And the proof that he finally realizes it is when he says at the second half of verse 15, the Lord has given Midian into your hands today that's the key Gideon did not step up before the people and say today I will deliver you from the Midianites he gives credit to the one who deserved all credit for this victory so if you want faith in the Lord like we see in the story of Gideon you pray for God to give you strong faith it doesn't just happen. You have to pray for it. You have to ask God to give you bold, strong faith in Christ. Dale Ralph Davis, I've been quoting this commentary all through our series. Here's what he says. We sometimes dupe ourselves into thinking that a real servant of Christ is only someone who is dynamic, assured, confident, brash, fearless, witty, adventuresome, or glamorous, with one or two appearances on a Christian television network? That's a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. Don't think you are unusable because you don't have that air about you. Christ takes uncertain and fearful folk 
strengthens their hands in the oddest ways and makes them able to stand for him in school or home or work. The story of Gideon proves that you don't have to be this polished, confident, smart, or even obedient the first time in order to be used by God. If he desires to use you for his purposes, then he's going to, regardless of how long it takes you to come around and realize it. And then number four, God provides in this story unusual victory. Why do I say unusual victory? Well, it's already unusual because God only uses 300 men instead of 32,000. Look at verse 16. He divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Now, if I'm a soldier, I have zero confidence in a trumpet and a torch. I want a bow and an arrow. I want an iron chariot. I want a sword. No, God says. Send the men out with a trumpet and a torch. No chariots of iron like we read about in the story of Barak and Sisera. Just good old-fashioned trumpets. Makes no sense on paper. So the men gathered at the outskirts of the camp in the middle of the night, and they blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, the text tells us, and they cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the text tells us in verse 22 that the Midianites ran, they cried out, and they fled. Nothing about this battle plan makes sense. If you're in the military today, they're not using the story of Gideon as a prime example of how to win a military victory. None of this makes sense, but here's what happens. We're told in verse 25, they captured ultimately the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. You see, God regularly provides for his people in unusual ways. The crossing of the Red Sea, the marching around Jericho, the slingshot and a smooth stone to defeat the giant known as Goliath. A beautiful queen by the name of Esther delivers her people from mass genocide. God's ways rarely make sense on paper. Stop trying to read the biblical narrative as a 21st century Christian. Read it through the lens of what was happening in the context in which these stories were written. In fact, the greatest victory in all of the Bible is a victory that makes no sense on paper. It's about an uneducated, unknown carpenter from a lowly place called Nazareth. And where Nathaniel in John's gospel says this about Nazareth. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, the Jewish people in the New Testament, they neglected to remember all of these stories that we've been reading about in Judges. And they were expecting some huge political military ruler to come in and overthrow the Romans and put the Jews back on top 
on the world stage. That is what they wanted. And instead, their fearless leader came in humility to serve rather than to be served, to wash the feet of his followers, to experience unimaginable suffering and pain on a wooden cross for the sins of his people. And yet, in the midst of that suffering and pain, and in his death, he brought victory over sin, death, and Satan. If you think, brothers and sisters, that coming to Jesus means that you have to bring your A-game every single week in order to be loved and accepted by him, then you don't understand the gospel. Do not walk into this room on Sunday with your A-game. Bring your F-game every single week. That is how Jesus wants us to approach him. In humility, with our weaknesses, with our sin, with our vulnerability. Jesus himself says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's an unusual thing to say. And it's unusual that the greatest victory in the history of the world came in the form of a bloody, gruesome death on a wooden cross. And yet, that is the gospel that we believe. That is the gospel that we cling to every single week as a church. That is the gospel that keeps us going. In his weakness, we are strong. In Gideon's weakness, in the 300 Israelites' weakness over the vast army of the Midianites, God provided unusual victory. So the only way to come to Christ is if you approach him in all of your weaknesses, in all of your flaws, in all of your sin, and you cling to his death and his resurrection. Let's pray together. God, in the life of Gideon, can I just say that I'm thankful that we're given an example of somebody who messes up a lot and misses all of the cues that you give him, and yet ultimately he still believed in faith, and you used him for your glory and for your name's sake in Israel. We thank you for his example. And may we come before you in all humility, if there are any in this room today who are not in Christ, I pray that they would realize that they do not have to come to you clean and spotless, but they can come broken, full of sin, because Jesus was clean and spotless for them. And they can receive the righteousness of God through faith in your Son. So we thank you for Gideon's example. Forgive us, God, when we don't have the faith that you want us to have. So you, I pray that you would give me strong faith, bold faith for your kingdom. We pray that for our church. Give us strong faith. Use us for your glory in this community and around the world. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.